It is Thursday, January 4th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, the celebration of a Muslim holiday in an unexpected place. Nowruz is kind of tradition for Afghanistan, and we celebrate it. Um, we have some games um, that we play together, and also we eat uh, some traditional foods. Plus, a vacant tourist motel in Yurka Springs has been converted into affordable housing. Considering all utilities are included, you can't beat it for the price. And a true crime podcast with a goal of being more than salacious. Well, I didn't want to do something that was kind of artificially, you know, like, let's just do a second season to do a second season. And let's like, let's just try to cash in on the audience we had from season one. I didn't want to mess up the, the, the thing we had, to be frank. First, the news from NPR. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season at Walton Arts Center Saturday, January 20th with The Great Unknown, performing the world premiere of Aldo Lopez Gavilan's Oceans to Cross, featuring nationally acclaimed pianist Laura Downs. The evening's program will also include Samuel Barber's Symphony No. 1 and William Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, January 4th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Ahead on the show today, a story about a Wisconsin paper mill, a crag in Batesville, and how rock climbing practices helped preserve some Ozark recreation. That's in our second half hour today. First, though, The holy month of Ramadan was celebrated from late March through much of April of last year. The observation happens for Muslims across the world, but in March, many people from Central Asia and the Middle East celebrated the Persian New Year, or Nauruz. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has this report from last year from a Nauruz celebration in an unexpected place. It's a bright and windy Sunday afternoon as people make their way up to a pavilion in Lake Fort Smith State Park. The sunlight flickers off the water while kids kick a soccer ball and families lay out tinfoil pans stuffed with food on long picnic tables. It looks like any other spring day in Arkansas, but as the music grows louder, it's clear this is a new kind of celebration for the area. Today, nearly 100 Afghan people are gathered here to celebrate Nowruz, the Persian New Year, which marks the beginning of spring. Most of the people celebrating here today are refugees who fled Afghanistan in 2021 after U.S. forces withdrew from the country and the Taliban took over. About 140 Afghans were resettled in northwest Arkansas over the last two years. Today, they're together, smiling, laughing, playing games, and sharing a meal. Nowruz is kind of tradition for Afghanistan, and we celebrate it. Um, We have some games um, that we play together, and also we eat uh, some traditional foods. I have a food that's called uh, haftseen. And uh, it's a combination of different uh, fruits. Basira Alfaisi is wearing a deep blue-purple traditional dress with sparkling white embroidery and a sheer headscarf. She says being able to celebrate Nauru's like this feels significant. 
Well, I feel myself very grateful that we have right now um, almost a good um, amount of community in Arkansas that we can celebrate the new year. Uh, it's almost two years that I'm here and uh, I really missed this kind of parties or um, fun things together. And uh, yeah, um, I like being with my people um, and talk to each other and um, celebrate things like Nauru's. For Mustafa Ramin, Nauru's, especially here, is more than another holiday or festival. It's a connection to home, to community, to a culture that so many Afghans felt they had to leave behind. Yeah, it, it, it really feels good, you know, when you see your families, relatives, friends, the guys who is from your country, you know, you feel a little bit good, yeah. And he says sharing these traditions with his new neighbors is important to keeping them alive. Uh, for sure, cultures are different, uh, and there's many differences in cultures. Uh, that's good that uh, we, uh, uh, Northwest Arkansas people, come and see our culture, and they may like it. They may can join next year with us, and it's a kind of sharing our culture, the way we learn from American culture, and I found uh, it's a great culture, and I love American culture, and we want to share the way we learn from them. It's good that we have them the next year here, and they, they may like our culture as well. And one of those favorite traditions of Nauru's is a game where two challengers duke it out with a pair of pastel-colored hard-boiled eggs. Kids crowd around a man holding a box stuffed with hay and dyed eggs. The music on the PA system winds down as another man takes control of the microphone and shepherds a crowd that's now amassed under the pavilion. In the center, the fighters go head-to-head, or egg-to-egg, that is. All right. All right, Rajana, everybody else get back, please. Let the commentator see it. Oh, there we go. Ahmad Ghani holds a bright pink egg in one hand. The engineer for Tyson Foods in Fayetteville says this game is relatively simple. So in here, uh, one has to sit down. We say like sit down means you hold it down, the other is coming on the top. So it should be head to head or back to back. So once you go head to head, whoever like you can have to have like hold it in a specific way that you don't break your egg, but the other egg is, is broken. So that's called like a, you win, like it's like gambling. You win money on it, you win, you bet on it. So this is all kind of betting. But here without money, so you just bet. Yeah. Uh, I like uh, egg fighting. So <laughs> it's literally translated into that. For Ozarks at Large in Mountainburg, I'm Daniel Carruth. Okay. So just bring it close so you can hear the sound when it cracks. Ahead on our show, a true crime podcast that wasn't aiming to top the charts and keep making episodes for that sweet podcast ad revenue. We didn't set out to tell a second story or a second season to Bear Brook. I never thought that was going to happen. And if you had asked me at, at any point, you know, up until about eight months ago, I think I would have said that's a bad idea. We hear from the host of the podcast in about eight minutes. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. 
Affordable residential housing in Eureka Springs has long been lacking, displaced by tourist lodging and a growing number of vacation homes. To meet demand, city planners are encouraging conversion of vacant business properties into long-term rental facilities. Ozarks at Largest Jacqueline Froelich visited a converted tourist motel back in July named Magic City Commons and brings us this story. When Ozarks Swiss Inn on Highway 62 East in Eureka Springs closed for business, the Dells Corporation, based in Mountain Home, purchased, renovated, and converted the motel into 52 affordably priced apartments for lease. This Saturday morning, two new tenants, Blake Wright, a former Eureka Springs resident, and his spouse, Renee, relax with their two dogs on their front porch, an AC unit cooling their newly refurbished apartment. I just recently moved back, and uh, we moved in here July the 1st. The sign out front has been changed from Ozark Swiss Inn to Magic City Commons with a phone number to call for let. Wright says finding an affordable place to live has been really hard. Considering all utilities are included, you can't beat it for the price. The couple pay $850 a month for their efficiency, which includes utilities and internet. Pets under 40 pounds are allowed to live here for an additional $25 per month. A few one- or two-bedroom apartments have already been leased. Renee Wright is new to Eureka Springs. Um, I think it's very peaceful. Um, I've never lived here before, um, but I'm very pleased with everything. Very beautiful. The couple are fortunate to find a reasonably priced place to live due to a chronic housing shortage in the tourist town, as well as rising rents. Historic District Commission Director Kyle Palmer, who also serves as Director of Planning and Community Development, says the Dells Corporation, Dells Corp for short, initiated renovation of the old motel late last year. It was not closed long before uh, the new property owners purchased it um, and they had reached out to me uh, November or December with their intention uh, to see if it would be something that would fit in with the city plan uh, before they came in and purchased the property. Magic City Commons is located uptown in a commercial zoned district so it's not subject to the city's strict historic district regulations, Palmer says. They are allowed to convert to residential without getting any special permits. Um, and yeah, so basically they had to meet building and fire code uh, regulations to make that conversion to long-term rentals, uh, which they've been really good about working with the city on making sure that they meet those requirements. The two-story cement block complex has a fresh coat of dark blue paint, white trim with black wrought iron railings. They ha did do a lot to the property. Um, new roof, new doors, new interiors, new lights. Um, yeah, they made a pretty significant investment. The former motel units all have new flooring, new kitchens, and fresh paint. Tenants share laundry facilities for a monthly fee. 
Palmer says several other tourist motels have stood vacant for a while and could also serve as affordable residential housing. And then there are a few kind of the same style that are for sale. Uh, and I know that there's been interest in both of those properties, converting them also into long-term rental units. Providing affordable housing to Eureka's workforce will help them save money. It seems like a lot of people were commuting into town for work and it's caused some uh, employment issues with some of the major employers in town not being able to find enough employees because there's a shortage of housing. We sought comment from the Dells Corporation, founded in 2018 by CEO Mark Bertel. The Dells, named after an Italian island, counts over 300 tenants in multiple states and has converted or restored more than 15 properties, including several restaurants and an ice cream shop in Mountain Home. Kate Fox is Dells' leasing agent and property manager who's facilitating leases for Magic City Commons. You know, we've had such a positive response from everybody that... Um I have met with, I mean, every single person I've come into contact with, I've really enjoyed speaking to. Um, Everyone's very friendly here, but everybody always tells me the exact same thing. They say, we need this so badly. Thank you so much. Applicant tenants must show proof of stable employment or income, submit to criminal checks, and provide references Fox expects Magic City Commons, currently over 20% occupancy, will be full by the end of summer. We're a tourist town, so we have a semi-transient workforce. And to get people to stay and to make a good living and make it affordable to live here is, is vital to our economy. Sandy Martin, chair of Eureka Springs Mayor's Task Force on Economic Development, says she contacted the Dallas Corp last year, encouraging the company to invest in Eureka Springs. We reached out to the Dell Corporation to let them know, and we found out what they were doing and the work that they were doing around the state and let them know that we had needs here um, and we had several motels that would be ideal locations to convert. Uh, And they picked up the ball and ran with it from there. Martin says the city's looking at available lots in town to build affordable housing. Small lots that are available for duplexes and quadplexes. And I think the most significant thing that we did to help the housing market, particularly workforce and affordable housing, is we started a community development corporation, the CDC of Eureka Springs, And it's patterned after the one in Bentonville. And that will provide um, incentives, potential for grants, uh, and write-off opportunities that the city or any other entity just simply could not do. So that community development corporation is kind of like going to be the development funnel for affordable housing and some other projects that we're working on. Recently, the owners of the historic Crescent and Basin Park Hotels in Eureka, which reportedly employs as many as 270 receptionists, cooks, waitstaff, housekeepers, and bartenders, converted a former assisted living facility into one-bedroom and studio apartments. Urban districts in northwest Arkansas are also seeking ways to provide more attainable housing. Northwest Arkansas Groundwork, a workforce housing center in Springdale, recently announced a new mixed-income housing development branded Big Emma 
funded with the $6.75 million grant provided by Walton Family Foundation, the 77-unit apartment complex will be located on Emma Avenue in downtown Springdale. Nearly half of the units will be reserved for middle-income households. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Bear Brook is a true crime podcast produced by New Hampshire Public Radio, whose second season came out early in 2023. That season is about the murder of Sharon Johnson and follows the story of Jason Carroll, a man who was convicted for his involvement in the crime, but has maintained his innocence for more than 30 years. I spoke to host Jason Moon about the show, and we go to his beginnings way back at StoryCorps and what his time there taught him about radio journalism. Yeah, geez, where to begin? I think one thing I really learned from StoryCorps, which uh, if people don't know, are these conversations that happen between people who know each other. So it's not like an interview between a journalist and a subject. It's a I almost don't want to call it an interview, but it's a conversation between, say, a father and a son or two people in a relationship. And they, they it's sort of an oral, oral history project. And those people talk for like 45 minutes. But then what the StoryCorps radio team does is turn those 45-minute long conversations into these two, two-and-a-half-minute radio stories. They're really compact. They're really dense and they're often really emotional. That's something that they would hear a lot from listeners, that, that people would like cry at these things a lot. And um, so that's one, one thing I learned from them was just how potent a story can be if you really can figure out how to hone it down to its like essential elements. You know, the 45-minute version of this conversation, you know, frankly, not a lot of people are going to sit down and listen to that. But if I can you know, figure out its essential elements and cut it down into two and a half minutes and kind of get you the soul of that conversation in a concentrated dose. Um, And if you can do that well, it can really uh, affect people. And that was just kind of, it was a good, it was one small window into the power of why do reporting and journalism and then put it into this kind of a format. And for me, that's one of those, what's one of the answers to that question because you know it can make you care it can make it can make you feel things about the underlying you know the story that you m- might not in a different kind of format so that's one thing i think about right and there's also an element too of you know when you have two people who personally know each other if you don't know either of those people that story may not be all that interesting to you that 45 minute version but yeah. finding a way to take a story that you don't have to know either side of the the conversation to really be invested in it, finding a way to turn that sort of story into something anybody and everybody can care about takes work. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the challenges. And one of the things that I feel like you need in any kind of story is that connection to something, if not universal, to something, you know, broader than the the, the events of the story itself. Frankly, I think about that a lot when it comes to uh, true crime storytelling and reporting. Unfortunately, to me, you know, it seems a lot of true crime falls into a rut of just sort of recounting events of a of a particular case or a, a specific crime just for the sake of retelling that story. 
in, a, in and of itself. And to me, that's not enough. I think to me, you need, you have to have a reason for telling the story that's because this case or this crime or whatever, this mystery tells us something broader about a system or about what it means to be X, you know, whatever it may be. But to me, you need that kind of, you, you have to, uh, I forget who came up with this phrase, but you have to climb that, that ladder of abstraction into broader, bigger, more kind of profound meanings that, that are out there. The first season of Bear Brook tells the winding story of a mysterious barrel found in the woods in Bear Brook State Park in New Hampshire. That first season came out in 2018. How long have you been working on season two that's just come out in the last month? Uh, that's a good question. Maybe about a year and a half or so. We didn't set out to tell a second story or a second season to Bear Brook. I never thought that was going to happen. And if you would ask me at, at any point, you know, up until about eight months ago, I think I would have said that's a bad idea. <laughs> but yeah, this was just, uh, I work, you know, now for a, a documentary unit here at New Hampshire Public Radio. And this story that became season two of Bear Brook was just one of a handful that we were kind of working on at the, you know, at the same time as some others. And then the more we worked on it, the more we learned about it, the more reporting we actually did, the more kind of strange and almost like uncanny overlaps with the first season of Bear Brook there were. And it just sort of started to feel like more natural that th that this, it was just so, so similar and so in, in many ways kind of aesthetically uh, you know, it's sort of a true crime story. And then also some of the people involved were the same people. And it just felt very much kind of like a spiritual successor in a way. And so we we started to, to call it season two. But yeah, to answer your question, I think I think it was um, sometime in, in 2021 that I first heard about the case and started to dig around. Why would you why was your gut reaction to say no to a second season of Bear Brook? Hmm. Well, I didn't want to do something that was kind of artificially, you know, like, let's just do a second season to do a second season. And let's like, let's just try to cash in on the audience we had from season one. I didn't want to mess up the, the, the thing we had, to be frank. You know, I think um, it would be disappointing for everyone, me, listeners, you know, anyone, if, if uh, we put out a second season that just felt like... Um, you know, we were doing it to like get advertising dollars, you know. So that's why I never really, it wasn't like a goal or, a, you know, something that was on my radar. Ultimately, I kind of had to be talked into it that it was like, that it wasn't going to confuse people, that it was going to be okay, that if we call it Bear Brook season two, like people will get that it's not the same story. And, you know, in the end, I feel, I feel comfortable with it. But um, yeah, it was like a slow, unplanned thing that happened kind of organically that, that this became the second season. Uh, for those who may not know, haven't listened to the show at all yet for the second season, um, can you give just like an elevator pitch of what season two is about and the story that you're telling? Yeah, sure. It's, a, it's about another case from New Hampshire in the 1980s. So that's the similarities with season one begin right there. And this is about a murder case and a conviction that some people believe was a wrongful conviction here in New Hampshire it's a story that has a lot to say about confessions. Uh, that's sort of the main evidence in the case. But it's also a story about uh, true crime 
storytelling in and of itself. So sort of one thread of of the series is a is a kind of meta examination, if you will, of uh, true crime and and what kind of um, impacts that true crime media can have on on the on real life cases. Two major struggles I always think about with any true crime series is the nature of finding a reliable narrator mm. and the concept of certainty. Mm. How did you find yourself dealing with those two things, especially considering the story of Jason Carroll, who is kind of the protagonist of this season? Yeah, that's those are questions that are that lie pretty near the center of of season two. Um, reliable narrators is, is probably I should have used that language. I'm I'm kind of upset that we didn't have this conversation before we finished. Well, before you start season three, we'll touch base. There we go. There we go. But yeah, that's that's just it. You know, are there reliable narrators? Can there be? I first became interested in this case because I learned that another true crime podcast was going going to be covering it here in New Hampshire, which is a little bit of a spoiler in the series. But um, I I was curious to see like, well, what if we watch what happens when another true crime when some true crime media is made? Let's like follow the uh, the impacts of it as they ripple out. Um, but one unexpected um, byproduct of that for me was that it gave me a whole new framing for for everything in the in the series, which was it, it kind of put everything in the terms of of storytelling and storytellers. Because here was a new podcast who was doing who was going to tell a story about this case. But then it it started to seem to me that like oh well that's kind of all anyone ever did with this case. All the actors involved the people who were uh, confessing under in, in these lengthy interrogations, the, the state in compiling its evidence for for prosecution, you know, emphasizing certain things, leaving other details out, the defense in, in crafting its own narrative. It were, they were all just kind of like almost like different versions of the same event, the same or the same set of events. And so... Yeah, that's one thing I really want people who listen to season two to um, be confronted with and think about because, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, a verdict, a jury verdict in a, in a criminal trial is really kind of like whose story is believed, you know? And that that's really what equals a verdict. And then, and then we sort of think of that verdict as the truth at that point. And one of the things I wanted to I want to show you in this series is how kind of to, just, to strip away some of the the mythos and the the pomp and the the aura that kind of can surround the criminal justice system and you know a, a jury verdict or the rulings of a judge or or what is you know put onto a a court document you know I think often we too quickly too easily look at those things as like absolutes and well if it was if if it was decided this then that's then that corresponds like 100% to like the literal events that happened in reality but when you go back and you look at the process for how we got to that point and you realize that it's actually it's just kind of like we don't like really know but like these pe- people told one story these people told another story and this other group of people like thought one was like kind of more convincing than the other, but they sort of 
didn't fully buy it, but whatever, that was the verdict. It just kind of, to me, it was instructive um, in the sense of kind of like undressing the, the, the structures of the criminal legal system in a way that made them seem like just more human, just more like, oh, these are just, we're just, these are just people. And, you know, maybe we're messing up in all, in all these ways that we don't really like fully appreciate or realize can happen. A trope of true crime storytelling of any kind is to hold tightly to a piece of relevant information that changes the way the story plays out. Had you known it earlier, it would have changed the way you understood the dynamics of this story. And you point out that piece of information in this season very early. Why did you think it was important to do that? Yeah, well, that was one of those moments where I realized that that was a trick what you just described was a was a trick that was used by people involved in the case itself. It wasn't just a thing that a TV producer or a journalist was doing. You know, there there are multiple situations uh, in this story where it could be argued that that's what a the people who are actually in. You know, I don't want to give too much away here, but speaking of this, sort of <laughs> ironically meta, but yeah, a, a detail is withheld. Uh, and there's a dramatic reveal of that. And I was like, oh, so it's not – this is not just the the province of, like, true crime podcasters here. You know, this is something that's been – that goes on in the system itself, you know. And here we're talking about the late 80s in, in New Hampshire. And so for the same reasons that I want to, as a storyteller, try to be careful about that kind of thing because I don't want to overly manipulate your perception of things, you know, I'm conscious of – you know the the listener's uh, level of trust in me as a narrator. I don't. I want to. You know. I don't want to endanger that by like yanking you around and being like just kidding. You know. But then once you realize that that's happening inside the system itself, it's like okay. Well, let's let's interrogate that. And so we did that in the very first episode because I wanted to sort of prime the listener to listen for it again, but done by other people, by characters in the story, not by not by me. So it's a sort of like heads up. It's like a reverse foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like here, here it comes. Talk a little bit about some of the other meta narratives that I think people, whether they're tropes, whether they're just, you know, fashions of true crime media in general, what sort of things are you trying to dispel? And is it, you know, I wonder if some of it is an element of like, reinstating the trust of listeners that mm. when they hear a story from a public radio station that it, they they want to trust that the storytelling is is right and that it's not just mm. something trying to get their attention but it's actually like trying to bring them factual information is there an element of that involved yeah i think i think ultimately for me like one of my goals for the series is for people to come away just more aware and maybe more skeptical of these tropes and and how they're used. But again, like not just how they're used by like media storytellers, but how they're, how those tropes are used by like people in power, uh, people inside the system. One other kind of um, trope we talk about is, is the, the idea of the detective who has like a, like a wacky personality who's sort of at, at the center of solving the case you know, which, as we point out in the series, like goes as far back as like Sherlock Holmes, but has been like, you know, repeated in like so many iterations over so many years. 
and the, there's a detective at the the heart of of this uh, story in Bear Brook season two that everyone um, compares to a, a TV detective from the 1970s, and there's a real question as to whether you know, people's impressions of him were really based on him or the TV show, and it was it sort of became hard to figure out where one stopped and the other started, and and I think that's just one of those things that can really you know, just color your your perception of of the truth and what's you know uh, what's happening. In much of the show, you feature tape from interviews that happened then. Um, how do you how do you deal with old noisy tape? <laughs> this is a technical <laughs> question more than anything. How do you deal with old noisy tape, and how do you decide when to use it, when to to transcribe it in your own voice? How do you decide when it's most effective, and when it's just better off describing it? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, because we we tried all kinds of things, technically speaking, to try to like clean it up so you could to make it more like legible, and then it got to a problem where I be, was so I had listened to the tapes so many times, and had read the um, accompanying transcripts, and so I knew the tapes pretty well, if not by heart, like certain sections of them. And then we started doing uh, uh, group edits where we bring like draft episodes to uh, some colleagues here at the station and they listen to a draft of the episode and no one could understand what was being said yeah. <laughs> in the tape. And I was like, really, you guys, like, he's, saying, he's saying this. And then everyone was like, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> so that, was a, that became a situation of like, I could no longer trust my own ear as far as that went. So we had, we brought in people fresh who hadn't heard anything and we'd be like can you understand that and they'd be like no and then so okay we're gonna have to uh i'm gonna have to narrate over that tape what they're saying but that said it was important to us that we keep the sound of that tape under the narration because while you know the, the a lot of these tapes are interrogation tapes and while you may not be able to pick out every word they're saying you're definitely getting like emotional information from what from the sounds you're hearing in the backgrounds The detective asks, what is it going to take? On tape, now listen to me clearly. One day in the future, this tape, which can never be destroyed or altered, will be played before a jury of people that will have, on tape, listen to me clearly, that will have understood the horror of the type of killing that Sharon Johnson was subjected to. The horror of the type of killing that Sharon Johnson was subjected to. Then the detective goes on, who actually did this entire uh, ugly, unforgivable, horrendous act. And they will have to conclude if Jason Carroll has the decency to express any remorse, and that expression must come forth by a willingness to be truthful. I narrate on top sections of it, and I give you the words, but you're hopefully still getting the, the kind of textural everything else from the tape itself. You're not only the host and reporter for the series, but you wrote and performed the music for the series too. When you're making the music for this, what does that process look like for you? Are you writing music and writing scripts simultaneously? Is it kind of you're you're using the music to kind of help folks feel the way that they ought to feel about uh, the script? Yeah, good questions. Um, I knew we were going to need a lot of music for the series because it was, A, going to be 
quite long. You know, it's, it's eight episodes. You know, most are I think around forty five minutes. And despite the fact that there was not a lot of that, that there were all these like uh, old tapes, and we interviewed lots of people, there are still long sections of of episodes where um, it's just me. You know, there's not there's not a lot of um, because it happened so many years ago. One problem we ran into was, you know, finding people whose memory was accurate enough to retell a story. And in most cases, they just simply weren't. And we had, you know, we had the documents to go off that we felt were more reliable. So we went with those. So we had these long sections that were just me narrating things. And so I knew we would need music to kind of help move things along, kind of, you know, one one important function of music for me is is just, it's sort of like, um, it's like paragraph breaks mm. in, a, in a long print piece. You know, it's like kind of subtly brings one, section to a conclusion starts a new one you know gives you a little momentum going into a new idea what have you you know the writing process for me starts it started maybe like six months out uh before release and it kind of starts based off of the the theme music which was sort of a an adaptation of the first season's theme music and then i want everything to kind of sound the different pieces to sound sort of cohesive so trying to work in the same key and, and, and have the pieces speak to each other. And sometimes I would listen to like raw tape of interviews as I'm writing just to try to, you know, see how this sounds under that. How does that sound under it? You know, it's, it's a very, it's a fine line. You know, I don't want to, um, you know, as far as like the, the emotional, the emotionality of the music, I want to try to stay away from like telling you how to feel but, but, you know, there's a limited range that I want to show in the music, I guess, you know. And I think of that sometimes as levels of seriousness, which I feel like is a kind of a neutral emotion that we can that we can use music to um, to underscore. You know, so like coming out of the interrogation tape, you know, I felt like that that's a really intense, really heavy tape. And, I'm, you know, I want people to have like a moment to just like sit with that. And so I need music for that moment. So that music just has to be serious. You know, it, it's coming, it, you know, it, regardless of what you think happened, you know, it's the tape of, uh, of an incredibly emotional moment. Translating ideas about music into language is one of the most difficult things to talk about. Yeah. You know, that translation is so hard and everyone kind of has their own, you know, people will say, well, can you make it a little, the music a little sharper here? <laughs> what does that mean? What do you mean sharper? You know, so yeah, you save yourself a lot of those kind of conversations yeah. if you can just do it yourself. Jason, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed. I've enjoyed this conversation, and Likewise. I've enjoyed uh, you know the show that you're working on. So thank you for doing that work. Thanks a lot. Jason Moon is the host of Bear Brook, a podcast produced by New Hampshire Public Radio. <laughs> This is Ozarks at Large. Jamestown Crag is the only sport climbing crag in Northeast Arkansas, just about 20 minutes outside of Batesville. It has more than 100 climbing routes bolted and ready to climb. But at one point, it almost disappeared. Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis brings us the story. 
Dennis Nelms lowers me from the top of a 30-foot rock wall. Nelms and I spent the morning climbing new routes at a recently developed outdoor climbing area in northwest Arkansas. Even though the sun had only been up for a few hours, temperatures were already reaching the 90s. Plus, it's summer in Arkansas, which means humidity and a lot of bugs. The climbing area is called the schoolhouse, and it's in the middle of Fitzgerald Mountain, which is only a 10-minute drive from downtown Springdale. Nelm says improvements to climbing gear and intentional route creation changes the way new areas are developed, which makes it easier to bring safe outdoor climbing closer to people. He, alongside Trailblazers, the Access Fund, and the Arkansas Climbers Coalition, have worked to build the area into a place that someone can come learn to climb, even if they have no experience outside. Traditionally, climbers find a new spot to climb outside and proceed by climbing the hardest wall possible. Then, they might put up one or two easier routes to warm up on. Nelm says this way makes improvement nearly impossible if you aren't already an advanced climber. At Fitzgerald, there are plenty of climbs suited for beginners. And that's accessibility for somebody that's new to climbing. So it really, it it sounds counterintuitive, but that's the way it's always been. Nelm says he's been taking cues from the Northwest Arkansas cycling community by bringing accessible climbs closer to the people who want to get outside. So now what we're doing is we're trying to find rock that's close in proximity to population and really look at, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to put in these easier climbs and then add in those harder climbs later, which is really turning development and climbing on its head. Intentional, professional development hasn't really been attempted anywhere else in the world. I mean, there's not, the closest thing to it would be, um, you know, maybe Via Ferrata's, which is, uh, it's a type of climbing with irons, uh, with cables and lanyards, and it's usually guided. Um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of uh, communities that have approached recreation like Northwest Arkansas. Um, you know, what they've done in the landscape of cycling. Ten years ago, people were like, this is crazy. You can't do this. And now they're like, how did you do this? We want to do it. We want a part of this. Arkansans haven't always been so enthusiastic about climbers. Until recently, most climbing areas in the state could have permanently closed if private landowners and state parks decided to shut them down. What's more, climbing has only just reached the mainstream of outdoor recreation. Climbing is culturally has a history of being on the fringe. You know, it was the rebel dirtbag that lived behind the, the dumpster in Yosemite Valley or, or hid from the rangers behind a log. That was me in the 90s. <laughs> so it's evolved a lot. You know, there's a lot of change. Um, you know, now it's more on the forefront. You know, the you know when, when Tommy Caldwell did the Don Wall, the the Rangers were there to congratulate him, which is just such a unique experience for the climb community. It's really come full circle. So, 
you know, things have just changed so much, uh, that landscape. And what we're realizing is that climbing has a value to communities that they don't even realize. The Arkansas Climbers Coalition is a nonprofit organization that seeks to draw out climbing's many benefits, says Coalition Vice President Andrew Bland. He says that developing climbing areas close to population centers bolsters a town's culture and economy. Climbing's always been here. It's Arkansas is an amazing resource for rock climbing. I, I think it's been overlooked for a long time. Historically, People have flocked to the Rocky or Appalachian Mountains for outdoor climbing, Bland says. Even though climbs in Arkansas don't reach the same heights as the ones to the east and west, they are uniquely poised to bring climbers into rural areas that might not get much traffic otherwise. Think like Newton County, Searcy County, Jasper, those sort of areas. And it brings a lot of tourists into those areas. People are traveling, whether they're traveling from northwest Arkansas and going to those places and spending money in establishments that are there. There's a lot of people that are coming down from the Kansas City area or St. Louis, Little Rock, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Dallas. The Midwest is generally lacking in the elevation department. So anyone in a roughly five-state radius of the Ozarks this is their home climbing area. This is where, if you're a climber, where, where you're going to on the weekends because you, you don't really have that much else. There's some, cool, there's some climbing in, in Oklahoma and the Wichitas. There's some climbing in southern Illinois. Um, there, Texas has a lot of climbing, but Texas is huge. So depending where you are in Texas, you are a lot closer to the Ozarks than somewhere like Waco Tanks or something like that. So there's, there's a really large potential for bringing in, or for climbers, they are coming in from these places. And if individuals or businesses can kind of cater to climbers, even just a little bit, they will go and spend their money at those places. Um, climbers love places that support climbers. The Land Trust recently made waves at Lincoln Lake by referencing a plan for recreational climbing in the park in the Trust's conservation easement with the city of Lincoln. A conservation easement is a voluntary legal agreement that permanently limits the use of the land in order to protect its conservation values. That's according to the National Conservation Easement Database. Director of Land Stewardship Marcin Nance says... Climbers allowed for their inclusion by being good stewards of the land they recreate on. To make sure that, you know, we're, we're being mindful of the habitat out there and potential, you know, uh, species that could be present there. Um, and just, uh, you know, just kind of working through the process with all these groups to determine, you know, where is climbing good? Where is it not good? Where are areas that we need to kind of leave alone for habitat? Um, so, so yeah, so, you know, climbers can, you know, just by being mindful of that, that, you know, they're in a wild space, they're in a natural area, that there are plants and animals there. There's some in Lake Lincoln that are, that are fairly rare in the state of Arkansas. And so, um, you know, just being mindful of that, um, and being respectful of the area, whether they're staging or climbing or, you know, um, you know, putting hands in cracks, <laughs> that, that, that kind of stuff, you know. Nelms says he hopes to bring people who have never touched rock with the intention to climb out into these areas. Specifically, he is looking to get Arkansans from marginalized communities up Ozarkan cliffs. We're really looking at how we, and 
how we can engage those other communities and what communities are there. Mm-hmm. You know, what does that really look like? Um, and so, you know, the the density of population in in the take Springdale for instance. Um, the climate out there is phenomenal. It's it's about to get really big, um, and a good portion of the population there is Hispanic. But when you go to climbing gyms and 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 you go to climbing communities, you see very few uh, examples of that Hispanic population. So um, it's not about accessibility um, as far as location, things like that. It's more like what what's culturally accepted, and how do we help perpetuate that? Yeah. Um, you know, and and for me, I don't have that answer because I'm not Hispanic. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't answer that question. But I can understand accessibility for things. Um, I can un- understand, uh, you know, how from an outside perspective, why would I climb? Right. You know, mm-hmm. but why do I climb? Is it, this is my personal space? This is my personal time? Right. I have to work, and and I'm very fortunate that work is climbing. Um, so I've made it made it just that everything, but not everybody has that. A, a, ability to do that um you know so so we've got to figure out how how to engage those different communities how are you all attempting to learn about that i'm asking people in that community just outreach just out yeah i'm just trying to find connectivity there and 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 i don't know Mm -hmm. i mean i'm looking for people Mm -hmm. to communicate with about it Fitzgerald Mountain is open to the public, and new areas will be added to the popular climbing app Mountain Project later this month. For those looking for more information, visit the Arkansas Climbers Coalition website. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jack Travis. In January of last year, Amos Cochran was joined by the Fort Smith Symphony String Quartet as part of KUAF's series... The Lunch Hour. Here's an excerpt from that performance. Um, so the first song that we're going to play is a song called Sleepy Boy. And it's, um, it's a tune that I wrote for my son Jude when he was a really little, uh, when he was little, like, holdable. Remember when they're, like, holdable and then they're not holdable? Um, Jude's definitely not holdable anymore, but um, I still like this song. I think over time it actually has turned into more of sort of a, a look at growing up instead of just being small because uh, we all end up growing up. Um, so this is Sleepy Boy. Hope you enjoy it.
You can find Amos's full performance by searching for The Lunch Hour at KUAF.com. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Froelich, and Jack Travis. Today's show was produced in the Bruce Nan Applegate News Studio 2. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Until then, thanks for being with me and be well.